KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, our politics today is haunted by the failures of Bill Clinton, the centrist who triangulated with Republicans, lost on health care, and proclaimed that the era of big government is over. Nelson Lichtenstein will explain Clinton's turn to the right and the lessons for today's Democrats. His new book on Clinton has the wonderful title, A Fabulous Failure. But first, news of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast. For that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the summer of strikes continues in October. Across California on Wednesday, the largest strike of healthcare workers in American history began. 75,000 workers at Kaiser Permanente. Striking employees work across California at 39 hospitals, more than 700 medical offices. And it's not just California. They're also striking at Kaiser in Colorado and the Kaiser hospitals. They're just a couple in Washington State, Oregon. Virginia and Washington, D.C. The vast majority are in California. They're represented by a coalition of eight unions, of which the biggest is the SEIU. These are the nursing assistants, the food service workers, the receptionists, the lab technicians, the pharmacists. It's a three-day strike that began at 6 a.m. on Wednesday. will run through Saturday morning. From the start of 2022, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has identified 42 strikes of more than of a thousand or more strikers everywhere in the United States, 42 big strikes, and about a third of those have been in healthcare. So let's talk about why is that? Why are healthcare workers so militant right now? You know, it is a uh, occupation, a profession where uh, people are uh, necessarily on call, even during uh, times when it's hazardous to be on call, as healthcare workers certainly were uh, at the height of the COVID pandemic. They were, uh, you know, what, what was labeled essential workers in all caps for them. <laughs> that doesn't mean their wages have been raised or safety protocols once the pandemic ebbed have been strengthened to the point where they uh, where they need to be. And, you know, look, in a lot of states, of course, these workers are not unionized, and these are not physicians who are, you know, highly paid. And they're not actually the RNs, the registered nurses either. And, and these are workers who, but for unions, would pretty much fall through the budgetary cracks of uh, the healthcare system uh, and be rewarded at the budgetary crack <laughs> level. And even when they're unionized, you know, as far as management is concerned, these workers are something of an afterthought. So it makes perfect sense in a time of, you know, I, I won't say general striking, because we haven't had a general <laughs> strike, but in a time of lots of striking, <laughs> that these workers are walking as well. And there's another reason 
why healthcare workers are so likely to strike right now, and that is their jobs can't be sent to Mexico or China. They are here for the long haul. The only thing they can do if they don't like their job is quit. And we're told that 5 million people left jobs in healthcare over what we are calling the great resignation. And polls show that two thirds of healthcare staff say they are burnt out more than one in five say they are quitting. Their primary grievance in this strike is not low pay, it's low staffing levels, which the unions argue to the public is hurting patients as well as workers. Oh, absolutely. When a lot of workers quit, what that means, of course, is that the remaining workers have to uh, take up the slack and work longer hours and such. So it, it you know, it, it sets in motion a bit of a vicious circle uh, for the workers who remain. As to staffing levels, that's been addressed by some of the work uh, occupational categories that have, I think, traditionally more bargaining power, particularly the nurses, uh, the National Nurses Union and nurses who are RNs who are affiliated with other state and national unions have often gone the legislative route to get a guarantee of adequate staffing. I know that's been the case in California, but it it doesn't it hasn't yet spilled over to all of the support staff, which is precisely the folks who are walking in the current three day strike. And so, uh, staffing levels is any if anyone's you know either has uh, been hospitalized or had a loved one who's been hospitalized. It, it's no, uh, you know, it doesn't take a great mental leap to understand uh, that hospitals and other such healthcare facilities are understaffed. Or or tried to make an appointment on the phone or yes, had to well, sit in, yeah, the, in, yeah, that, in the well, waiting room. With your individual physician who, as I've discussed, I think, at a previous <laughs> broadcast with you, John, uh, more and more individual physicians are now swept up in these, uh, you know, uh, corporate enterprises as well. So, yeah, getting anyone on the phone and getting uh, the kind of service <laughs> that patients require, uh, in, you know, in this, in this day and age can be a, a really arduous undertaking. Somebody posted on Twitter Wednesday morning a video of Kaiser workers walking out the front door of Kaiser Anaheim at 6 a.m., hundreds of workers heading out to join the strike. It was still dark. How did those workers look to you? Well, I, I looked at that video and I turned on the audio of that vi uh, video and they were, uh, you know, almost in a, uh, a hell with it celebratory mood. They were they were shouting slogans. They were applauding. Uh, they it didn't it certainly didn't look like they had been dragooned by union bosses to go out on strike. Uh, they they understood that they deserved what they're demanding, and uh, that they were very willing to walk out in order to get it. And I noticed uh, virtually all of them were people of color, mostly Latinos, and I think this is probably true not just in Southern California. No, it, 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 and again, as anyone who has either been hospitalized or had a loved one who's hospitalized or dealt with all kinds of parts of the healthcare sector, you know, increasingly the American working class, uh, that's what it looks like. And uh, certainly in California, uh, you know, Latinos, Filipinos, it's a, it's a very diverse workforce 
reflecting, you know, the demographics of uh, the working class California and in much of the rest of the nation as well. So what we know about the negotiations on the staffing front, Kaiser said its goal is to hire 10,000 new people for union represented jobs by the end of 2023. That's 10,000 hires in the next three months. The union coalition is asking for a 6.5% raise in the first each of the first two years and 5.75 in the next in the next two years, Kaiser's offered 4%. The coalition rejected that offer, uh, saying it fails to keep up with the cost of living. What do you think about this, this battle? These sound like bridgeable differences to me. If uh, someone's saying six and someone's saying four, you might settle on five. Uh, you should be in labor negotiations. Yeah, really, really, or, or a secondary arithmetic, one or the yeah. other. I don't think a long impasse uh, is a likely outcome of what we are seeing just right now. Kaiser is officially and legally a nonprofit organization, but unions pointed out that Kaiser's financial reports recently indicate that they had profits of $3 billion in the first half of 2023. That is, their income was $3 billion more than their expenses. Uh, and their expenses in, include salaries to executives starting at $16 million a year for the CEO. Kaiser's offering a minimum wage of $23 an hour in California. What's going on here? What's going on is that Kaiser sounds like, you know, a normal American big business corporation. All of those numbers are kind of typical for what we see, the 16 million compensation, $23 minimum wage. All of that sounds like the difference between a, a nonprofit, a big nonprofit and a big profit driven uh, concern, at least in, in the health sector, isn't all that great. And that really doesn't qualify as a scoop, as, as radically new news. <laughs> this has obviously been the case now yeah. for some time. The starting wage at Kaiser's is one of the big issues in the negotiations. Kaiser's offering $23, I said. The unions have been seeking $25 an hour minimum wage. And I understand the uh, California legislature has passed a union-backed bill to mandate a minimum of $25 an hour for healthcare workers. It's, I believe, it's still on the desk of Gavin Newsom. Have I got that right? Yeah, and the, the desk of Gavin Newsom has been tilting both ways over the last week as he rejected a legislature bill to give unemployment insurance to striking workers who've been out for at least two weeks and uh, setting uh, health and safety standards for home care workers in individuals' homes. Uh, so, you know, the fate of bills on Gavin Newsom's desk is at this juncture anybody's guess. Moving on to political news, the other big political news is also about Gavin Newsom. He, he picked LaFonza Butler to replace Dianne Feinstein in the Senate. LaFonza Butler, just to review, has been the CEO of EMILY's List. Of course, they support Democratic pro-choice women running for political office. LaFonza Butler also served for more than a decade as president of 
SEIU Service Employees International Union Local 2015, known as you know uh, well, they represent more than 325,000 nursing home and home care workers in California. It's the largest union in California, the largest local representing long-term care workers in the, in the country. Alfonso uh, Butler is also gay and out, but there's one more thing about Lafonza Butler that I'd like to focus on for a minute. She's black in a state where Latinos make up the largest ethnic group. You've recently written about ethnic group politics uh, in California. Maybe we should just start with the numbers. Uh, how, how many uh, Californians are Latino? How many are white? And so on. California is a state in which there's a Latino plurality. About 40% of Californians are Latino, 35% are non-Hispanic white, uh, about 15 or 16% are uh, Asian Americans, and about 6%, or under some surveys, 5%, are African Americans. So it does not have the demographics of a lot of eastern states and other states where the massive immigration from uh, south of the border hasn't really had the kind of transformational effect that it's had uh, in, in California. This is also a big change from the California where you and I grew up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you look back at the 1980 census, when we were both teenagers. Uh, uh, you're right, right. I was I was uh, uh, walking around in diapers. I mean, at, at, at 30 years of age, that was kind of unusual. But anyway, uh, uh, if you look at the 1980 census, the uh, Latino population is only 19%. The black population is a little higher, 8%. Uh, in some surveys, maybe 9%. And the white population is well over 50%. In 1980, the census did not even ask if uh, uh, someone writing, responding to the census was Asian American. That hadn't, uh, that hadn't permeated Washington, D.C. yet. One, one brief little story. In, in, uh, in the year 2000, or actually even before then, 1999, New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley challenged Al Gore for the Democratic presidential nomination and uh, he came to Los Angeles to deliver a speech about black-white relations. And he delivered it at a high school in Los Angeles, which was over 90% Latino. <laughs> so that gives you some sense of a bit of a time lag between uh, sometimes what the national government uh, perceives and what the reality on the ground in California has become. In, in uh, the not-too-distant past, if you saw that... Democratic posters for their slate of candidates for office on election day. It was very carefully structured around ethnicity. One Italian American, one Irish American, one Latino, one Jew, and one some, black. I mean, that, one was, black. that was your slate in New York City, uh, in, in, in theory, anyway. People like Gavin Newsom face pressures to construct similar slates of candidates. Well, Newsom uh, has sort of had uh, issues thrust upon him because of, of, of the leading public elected offices in the state being vacated. First, Kamala Harris's Senate seat, because she became vice president. And now Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat in the wake of her death, uh, you know, last week. So he's been 
under pressure to, you know, balance slates hither and yon. And of course, uh, there were also two uh, elected officials who were went to the cabinet, uh, Attorney General Javier uh, Becerra became the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, and Secretary of State Alex Padilla became a U.S. Senator. So that meant Newsom has had to fill four statewide elected positions, which is, you know, kind of an accident, but one that plunges him right in the middle of, uh, you know, sort of wars of ethnic succession, which are uh, in many ways the basis for a lot of American politics. In California, however, blacks have been elected to many, many more offices than Latinos, even though they're a shrinking part of the electorate. How, why is that? Well, I mean, that's a legacy of, of the past demographics. And uh, initially, it's also because uh, there were two parts of the state where blacks, you know, were the victims of residential segregation and thereby commanded majorities in uh, sort of central Los Angeles and the East Bay of San Francisco and began electing uh, public officials to the legislature first, going back to the Gus Hawkins being elected on Upton Sinclair slate to represent Watts, really, uh, you know, in, in the Upton Sinclair year of 1934. And he ended up serving in Congress until the early 1990s to be succeeded by Maxine Waters. And in the East Bay in San Francisco, this wasn't this didn't turn on racial composition, but really as a as the personification of the left politics of Berkeley and Oakland, uh, Ron Dellums, a, a avowed black socialist, ousted the Democratic incumbent in 1970 in the Democratic primary and went on to represent that district for nearly 30 years. And he was succeeded by his former chief of staff, Barbara Lee. Maxine Waters represents, as you say, what we might call Watts. What's the racial composition of her district now? Oh, it's long since been majority, not just plurality, majority Latino. I mean, with the, you know, the Latino immigration was an immigration of working class and poor uh, Latinos on the whole, and that meant they had to live in places with relatively modest rents, and that brought them to South Central. And so uh, Maxine, who succeeded Gus Hawkins, uh, representing that district, which, you know, at the legislative level has been Black, as I said, since 1934. At some point, uh, Maxine, who was in her mid-80s, will retire, and she's done a very good job of representing working-class residents of all ethnicities and races in her district. But, you know, there's no way that uh, that district, I think, is is probably going to keep electing African-American representatives. And even if you futzed around with the lines, uh, it, it would that would still be difficult. Uh, the demographics have simply changed. And when she does step down, it's not at all clear that this area that has had African-American representation since the 1930s will continue to do so. There's one other state that has a demographic profile almost identical to California, and that is Texas. You know, 40% Latino, 35% white, and a smaller percentage Black and uh, Asian. Right. However, similar as they are demographically, California 
is deep blue and Texas is deep red. So apparently demography is not destiny here. No, it's not. And I would say the major difference is that there have been major efforts, chiefly by unions beginning in the 1990s, to mobilize and politicize the Latino population in progressive and capital D democratic directions. And and that has been key to taking California's former status as, I would say, a purple state and making it deep blue. And, you know, there are no unions in Texas for all intents and purposes. And that effort has not been made in Texas. And then there's a huge ideological difference between, you know, your average, whatever that means, California white, and your average Texas white. Yes, this is true. I looked this up. 60% of whites in Texas vote Republican. 40% of whites in California vote Republican. Now, that's still a huge number of Republican white people in California. But proportionally, there's a big difference between the white people in these two states. That's right. And remember, 40% of whites is just 40% of 35%. So. We're not talking uh, uh, nearly enough to actually flip the state in a red direction. It's far, far short of that. However, Democrats think they are getting close to having a chance in Texas. Donald Trump only carried Texas by about six percentage points in 2020. Ted Cruz was reelected in 2018 by less than three points, narrowly defeating, you may remember, Beto O'Rourke. Less than three-point margin is a terrible showing for an incumbent senator in the United States. And Democrats look at these numbers and say, well, someday soon, we're going to be able to uh, defeat Ted Cruz and maybe even carry the state for a Democratic presidential candidate. Ted Cruz is up for re-election this year. The Democrats are running Colin Alred. He's a representative from Houston, a former NFL player. He is black. He is not Latino. They tried to get a Latino, Julian Castro, who was you know, Secretary of Housing for Obama and the former mayor of San Antonio to run against Ted Cruz, but he wouldn't do it. Nevertheless, Colin Alred, some people think, has a chance. Uh, What's your opinion? Well, some of the political rating services, like the Cook Rating Service, uh, have clearly said that Cruz does not have a lock on Texas. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's not an uphill battle. And certainly the Republicans in Texas can raise a gazillion dollars. Though I have to note, The New York Times uh, Trump beat reporter uh, Maggie Haberman sent around a tweet today noting that there is a big fundraiser for the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee scheduled next week in Houston honoring Kevin McCarthy. And she wasn't clear clear what the fate of this event will be. But notwithstanding that, you still wouldn't bet, you know, your life savings on the Democrats taking uh, Texas next year. But, you know, down the line, the uh, the demographic changes, which also include some white in in migration in places like Austin. And these are not your basic white Texas conservatives moving into the state down the line. Yeah, Texas is going to become at least purple and not as solidly red as is today. Finally, news about Donald Trump. 
a lot of news about Donald Trump this week. Yeah. The piece that hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, the issue, the fact that hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, in my opinion, is the campaign, the statement released by Trump's campaign demanding that the Republican National Committee cancel all future debates and focus instead on Trump's complaints that the Democrats are going to steal the 2024 election. If the RNC refuses, the statement says, and continues to hold more debates, it will show that the national Republicans are, quote, more concerned about helping Joe Biden than ensuring a safe and secure election, close quote. I know you've been watching the Republican debates. Do they show the party is more interested in helping Joe Biden than in helping Trump? I think the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, uh, I, I watching that last debate because I, I covered the debates for the American Prospect almost required like the steady drinking of scotch. And I, I just didn't have enough. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, between the debates and what we've seen from the Republican House delegation, this is not exactly putting their best foot forward. It's it's more like falling down flat on their face. So we. Uh, Trump might actually have the better of that argument. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Our politics today is haunted by the failures of Bill Clinton. That's what Nelson Lichtenstein argues in his new book on Clinton titled A Fabulous Failure. Nelson is a research professor at UC Santa Barbara, author of 16 books, including State of the Union, A Century of American Labor. He writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, The Guardian, and The Nation. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, I think we have to start with the fabulous title of your book on Bill Clinton, A Fabulous Failure. Where does that come from? Well, uh, two rather prominent economists, uh, Janet Yellen and Alan Blinder, in the year 2000, uh, Yellen is now Secretary of Treasury, uh, wrote a little book, short book, called a, The Fabulous Decade, or A Fabulous Decade. And they did point out correctly uh, that, you know, unemployment was very low in the late 90s. The, the, the budget was balanced. Uh, the stock market was booming. And so they called it The Fabulous Decade. <laughs> they wrote it in 2000. I'm writing this 20-odd years later. And it's clear that many of the things that Clinton did in, in the world of economics sort of blew up. <laughs> you know, maybe not right then, but, you know, of course, 2008, and then more generally, the economic hollowing out of the Midwest. Clinton was a fabulous politician, in many ways, very successful politician, very, the first Democrat to win re-election since FDR. So I titled A Fabulous Failure. Now we think of Bill Clinton as the centrist who triangulated with Republicans to move American manufacturing offshore, as you say, complete the transformation of the industrial heartland into the Rust Belt, eviscerating the American labor movement, adopting right-wing ideas like ending welfare as we know it, 
Of course, he recruited Wall Street support for the Democratic Party by deregulating banks and telecommunications. And he proclaimed, the era of big government is over. Reagan himself couldn't have said it better. But you say that's not the program Bill Clinton campaigned on. When he first ran in 1992, he ran, you say, as a progressive. So tell us about the Clinton agenda in 1992, which I guess begins with James Carville's unforgettable slogan, it's the economy, stupid. Right. Clinton did run as a, a more progressive figure than certainly than Jimmy Carter and anyone since LBJ. Uh, and he had a lot of ideas and people around him. Uh, the phrase industrial policy, which is now in the, uh, the news, Biden's really a build back better uh, is really industrial policy. He was in favor of that. His health uh, reform proposal was was actually to the left, I think, of, of the one that was eventually passed under Obama. He wanted to keep his eyes focused on the economy, not on culture war issues, which some of his advisors were in favor. Of, and of course, the Republicans were beginning to do at that time. Um, and so part of the failure is a failure of, of a progressive initiative. Let's start with health care, which for millions yeah. of people was the biggest failure of, yeah. of the Clintons. We thought Bill and Hillary we're going to transform the country and create universal coverage, health insurance for all Americans. And they, the plan was that they, they thought they had the support of some of the most powerful forces on the business side, the big insurance companies that would make a lot of money from a government program that paid them. And also they thought they had the support of the big unionized employers like GM who would not have to pay health benefits to workers if the government took over. So by preserving private insurance companies they thought it seemed like this would pass and and become law what went wrong with the clinton health care plan that's right there was a big slice of american capital that was burdened by health care costs uh, usually the manufacturing sector and they wanted something uh, that you know that would relieve them of that cost and the clinton plan would do that and those firms would then have some influence on the republican party they overestimated that for sure. Of course, it had opposition, and it wasn't just from the right wing of the Republican Party. Newt Gingrich's power was growing, a kind of hostility to any sort of reform. But what was also happening was I think the Clintons sort of misjudged the shape of where power really lay in the economy, less with General Motors and more with Walmart. And by the way, they weren't the only ones. The uh, editors of Fortune magazine had kept the retailers, low-wage, low-benefit retailers, out of the Fortune 500 until the year 1995. And then they say, oh, I think we better put Walmart and Sears. <laughs> what happens? They come up number four or number five. And, and by the year 2000, Walmart's the biggest uh, company by sales and by employment in the country. So the Clintons kind of misjudged that. That's why I think the shape of American capitalism, the nature, who's, where, where certain people are strong, where they're weak, you know, in terms of trade, in terms of finance, this is essential for historians to understand why Clinton failed and why today, you know, is Biden going to succeed or fail? And, you know, and I think we have to understand those things. That's that's what I'm trying to, to get at. It's not just the foibles of Bill or Hillary or anyone else, you know, uh, et cetera. It's, it's really more fundamental than that. Clinton brought us a lot of the economic changes that Reagan had argued for, the market 
ruling everything, Wall Street in command. But but when Clinton became president, you point out in the book, there were other varieties of capitalism in the world, and several of, of those were a lot closer to what Clinton tried to do in Arkansas and what he and a lot of his advisors were interested in, to use the power of the state to boost the economy. And he brought people into his cabinet who wanted him to do that, especially Robert Reich, the Secretary of Labor. So there was a, a big debate inside the Clinton administration, and the progressive side had some good models in the world and some good arguments, arguments that Clinton was sympathetic to. Yes, initially, yes. I mean, I, one of the, the slogans that, that was around, uh, Paul Sangas, who, who ran against Clinton uh, in the 92 primaries, but he, he had a phrase, he said, the Cold War is over, Germany and Japan won. And <laughs> Clinton agreed with that, basically. The Germany and Japan represented these different models of, of capitalism, you know, a, a kind of social market in Germany and, and Japan, a kind of finance, banks, big companies, all sort of much closer together in a kind of corporatist arrangement. And Clinton, as governor of Arkansas, a very poor state, he was desperately trying to figure out how to industrialize it and, you know, get more jobs and better jobs. And he went all over the world, uh, to northern Italy, to Germany, Japan, etc., looking for looking for models, not just sort of investment. Oh, we have cheap labor, come. But looking for models. He, he didn't really want that cheap labor argument for investing in, in Arkansas. And he had people he brought into the administration. Robert Reich, uh, who today is, is, is actually much more to the left than he was in 1992. But the other, the other figure I think is kind of very interesting is uh, Laura Tyson, who was a um, <clears throat> Berkeley. She, she and others had this roundtable on international economics. They were very much in favor of both industrial policy at home, meaning Yes, we're going to target new investments in the same way that Biden's doing it now, and also manage trade abroad, meaning, no, we aren't going to just let the free market. And so when Clinton had to decide who was going to be chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, this tells you about his mindset at this time. So who, who are the candidates? Larry Summers, who would go on to be, you know, uh, kind of a very conservative figure, although he, his background wasn't that. Paul Krugman, who, of course, now is very famous, and, and but at that time, he was very much an advocate of, of free trade. And Laura Tyson. Laura Tyson was by far a, a less distinguished economist than the other two, but she was an advocate of industrial policy of the same sort that Clinton and Reich and Ira Magaziner and many others were thinking about. So she was made head of the Council of Economic Advisors. Unfortunately, as head of that council, I don't think she did that much with it, but but she was selected because of her particular economic policies. You, you say the Treasury Department became the most important oh, yeah. force in the Clinton administration. Ex explain that. Yes, well, I say there were two forces that Clinton really could not control and was quite frustrating. One was the Federal Reserve Board run by Alan Greenspan, which, you know, is, has been independent for you know half more than half a century and and is always kind of an independent force uh, for any president the second is treasury where first lloyd benson a, a more conservative texas senator and then then mainly robert rubin were secretary treasury and the the reason i say that you in theory you know all cabinet positions are subordinate to the to the president but the kind of the uh, weight and authority of the 
more orthodox, and or you could call them neoliberal, and we could define that phrase in a second, neoliberal economists at Treasury was so great that I found time and again, Clinton would have some progressive idea. Hey, can we limit executive salaries? Or what about the, the East Asian countries are getting all this hot money? What can we do about that? And he'd send this over to Treasury, and, and back would come a five-page, single-space, well-argued, no. <laughs> and about at one point, George Soros, he was interested in structuring and managing capitalist money flows. And, and Clinton loved his book and, and, you know, and, and underlined it and told his aides to read it. And he sends it over to Treasury. And of course, they come back with a complete denunciation of it. Just, so <laughs> this tells you something about government. If you want to have a government that's going to carry out a more progressive line and the president's elected on that basis, you've got to have the people to do it. So Clinton's idea was that a globalized economy would give the United States the high technology, high skilled, entrepreneurial heart of the world economy. And indeed, we did get Apple. But we also, in that era, as you say, we got Walmart, we got McDonald's, we got Amazon, low wage, low skilled retail companies that have fought unions ruthlessly. How much of that is Clinton's responsibility? Well, obviously these things were happening independent of the president. Clinton didn't come in with that idea that you just expressed. He was defeated. And then by the second term, very much Clinton and people around him are talking about a new economy. That's the phrase, new economy, uh, which meant Silicon Valley, transformations of, of telecommunications, uh, all of that. And they were, you know, very excited about it. Uh, they were, they thought, well, we don't need regulation. You know, we can have deregulation. We can have free trade because we're going to be on the top. Uh, and I think they were seduced by that idea. And really, the new economy was not just Silicon Valley. It was it was Walmart. It, it was low wage service yeah. sector. I mean that. I mean, and when you look at the number of jobs being created, you know the the number of janitors and home healthcare workers and retail clerks does in fact far outstrip the number of computer programmers and and things of that sort. They there were still. I mean, I could go into this. There were still some things that in the second term that were that they did. For example, chips, the children's health insurance program, which was a kind of consolation prize for not getting uh, health insurance. The, the big plan that that went into effect, very successful, and and the, and all the Clinton people were very proud of that, and and they're they're right to be because it it helped tens of millions of of kids. But basically, the the economy was much increasingly financialized and tremendous deregulation, which really were clicking time bombs, which would in fact explode in the next decade. So your argument in this book is that Clinton's turn to the right was not, I'm quoting, not merely a product of defeat at the hands of corporate enemies and political foes. It was also bred by a series of illusions, yeah. his illusions. And yeah. in some cases, the chickens didn't come home to roost for a long time. It was eight years before we got the financial crisis in 2008. How much is Clinton to blame for that? This is the deregulation of derivatives. It wasn't as if these things, uh, where there were no people inside the administration saying, this is a bad idea. <laughs> there were. Now, derivatives are kind of insurance products that, that are really wagers that seemingly are safe bets because some companies are not going to go bankrupt and therefore you can have a highly highly leveraged insurance as it were you know and and you know you'll, you'll come out okay but 
sometimes that doesn't happen. So the, the idea of, of the deregulation of derivatives, their sale without any regulations, there was a big debate about this. A woman named Brooksley Bourne, who was head of the Commodities Future Trading Corporation, which had usually in the past, oh, it would, it would regulate hog bellies and, and corn futures. Well, futures on stocks, futures on, on, on other kinds of of financial instruments, which derivatives were, she wanted to regulate them and said, this is this stuff is, is growing by leaps and bounds. It's unregulated and it's going to explode. Fortune magazine had articles, you know, yes, it's, you know, saying that. They call them alligators in a swamp. They're ready to snap. Mm. But Rubin, Robert Rubin and Larry Summers and others, they all, again, came down on Brooksley born with like a ton of bricks and uh, a financial law was passed, which completely unregulated derivatives. And these things grew by the trillions and trillions of dollars. And then they, they imploded in 2008 and nine, just completely imploded. Looking at lessons that Clinton's successors learned from yeah. his failures and disasters, Obama did pass his number one priority, a national health care program. Obamacare is not what we wanted. It's not what he had promised, but he succeeded where Clinton failed. What had Obama learned from the failure of the Clintons? Why did he succeed where the Clintons yeah. failed? Well, I think he succeeded because he did see what, what, it, what had been the problems of, of uh, Clinton, which was various uh, sectors of, of capital, big insurance, certain kinds of insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, abandoned ship. They, they said, no, we don't want to do that. So, so Obama said, I'm going to structure this so Walmart can be on board. So the big insurance companies will make more money. And he made, and there were, they were, these deals, you think of Obama as kind of a uh, idealistic character. They made some real crude deals in the, in the run up to that. And therefore the big, big insurance, big pharma, the, the, the low wage retailers were not opposed. The Republican party, yes, was a hundred percent opposed to Obamacare. But I think the fact that it passed anyway, that there weren't that many defections among the Democrats indicates it's because the big players, the big companies, they said, yeah, we're going along with this and they weren't going to lobby against it. And they didn't. So I think Obama learned that. He also put a tax, paid for it with a progressive tax, which I think Clinton was afraid to do. And I think that turned out, that was also one of the reasons for opposition, but that turned out to make one of the most progressive features of Obamacare uh, is in fact its tax uh, system. That was eight and nine years after Clinton, 16, year, 16 yeah, right. years after Bill left office, Hillary lost the presidency to yeah. Donald Trump. And you call election day 2016, the Clinton's day of reckoning. Uh, let's talk about that. Is Trump really part of the Clinton legacy? Well, insofar as he, for a moment there, and, and, and clearly his main appeal is ethno-nationalism and, and worse, but, there, but in 16, he did, in fact, win some of those Midwestern states that, it, that had been hollowed out by, by trade with China. And, and China was not a, a, a fair trading partner in any way, shape, or form. China certainly was managing its trade with the U.S. Anyway, Trump took advantage of that. And I would also say that that by 2016, I mean, you know, if you're in politics for 25 years, and Hillary was, you know, you become a more tempered kind of figure. And so she really, she had no program that could really excite. And, the, and, and, and Bernie, Bernie Sanders, he didn't have to denounce Hillary to make her look bad. He just had to say, this is what I stand for. And, and in comparison, she just looked tepid, really. 
And so, you know, Trump uh, squeaks in there. I mean, he, she still won three million more votes than he did, but nevertheless, he squeaked in there. And the Clintons uh, ha- are in the doghouse. And I think the re- they were not in the doghouse until 2015. Bill had given a very uh, good speech in 2012 defending Obamacare at the Democratic National Convention. Hillary was kind of a popular Secretary of State, but it was when Bernie on one side, Trump on the other, that just put the the Clintons in the doghouse. You say Trump's victory over Hillary had one salutary impact. What was that? Usually when the Democrats get defeated, they move to the right. Uh, That was true after Carter. And it was true, I think it was true after uh, Clinton uh, defeated by Bush. Usually they move to the right. But when Trump wins, the Democrats move to the left. Uh, And I think part of the reason is that the Democrats were more united. The Southern Democrats were gone. The other thing, of course, is that Trump did put on the agenda issues of trade in a way. And I think the illusions about free trade and creating, for example, democracy in China or civil society in China, I think those were, uh, were, were coming apart. And in fact, today, are, 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 no one would, would, would make, that, make, make the point either economically or, or politically about the virtues of free trade. Last question. What do you think Joe Biden has learned from the failures of Bill Clinton? Well, Joe Biden was a centrist Democrat, really a kind of Clinton loyalist, but uh, he realized that, that a kind of industrial policy, a reindustrialization was important, both economically and politically in the Midwest. And, you know, he brought into his administration some w- people who were who would have considered really radical in the 1990s, Alina Khan at the Federal Trade Commission and others, uh, at, at Brian Deese in charge of industrial policy uh, at the National Economic Council. He has brought all these young left liberals or even radicals in and gave them positions of responsibility and push through some very large trillion dollar bills involving infrastructure and the welfare state that were way beyond what Clinton could even have conceived. And I think that Biden thought, well, there's a thirst for that and I'm going to do it. You know, kudos to him. Nelson Lichtenstein, his new book is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency in the Transformation of American Capitalism. Nelson, thanks for this terrific book, and thanks for talking with us today. Great to be here. I appreciate it. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, thinking about the left. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Minnesota's transition from coal to solar-generated electricity continues. A new solar plant north of Minneapolis is expected to be the largest in the upper Midwest and one of the biggest in the country. Excel Energy is converting a coal-fired plant in Becker a town of 5,000 people between Minneapolis and St. Cloud. They plan to complete the new solar plant in 2025. It will have a 460 megawatt capacity. That's roughly enough to power 100,000 homes. Excel will convert almost 3,500 acres of rural Minnesota to solar panels. That will be one of the largest solar farms in the country. A spokesman said right now, 
solar energy makes up 4% of the upper Midwest energy mix. We expect that number to be closer to 9% in 2026, the first full year of the solar installations operation. Wind is also a major source of electricity in Minnesota. The company said that workers won't suffer in the transition to solar. The spokesperson said, quote, we have already transitioned other Minnesota coal plants without layoffs, and we expect to accomplish this again at this facility. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Ah!